May the Lord be with you. So we are in the middle of a sermon series on becoming like Christ. And I want to begin the first part of the sermon this morning with a bit of review um, as we're now kind of coming down the home stretch in the last uh, few weeks of this sermon series. Uh, The biblical principle that we've been looking at really over the last few months is that we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. And this principle is true whether we worship idols, as we spoke about before Easter, or whether we worship Christ. We become like what we worship. As we submit our life to Christ and worship him, over time we become like him. And the question that we've been seeking to answer over the last few weeks is, how does the Holy Spirit form us into Christ-likeness? Is it something that just happens to us? Uh, do we sit idly by while, while the Holy Spirit does this work? Or is there some action that we need to take? And to answer this question, a few weeks ago, we looked at the passage of Scripture from Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, which says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always, always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Formation into the image of Christ is a work that the Holy Spirit does in us as we commit to working out our salvation with all seriousness, with fear and with trembling. Formation into Christ-likeness happens in a dynamic relationship of the Holy, when the Holy Spirit's power comes to bear in our lives as we decide and commit to become like him. Uh, Dallas Willard reminds us that, that Jesus says, You can do nothing without me. But it is also true that if we do nothing, then we will do it without him. If we do nothing in our spiritual life, then we can be sure that the Holy Spirit will also do nothing. But if we commit to enter into practices and disciplines that have been given to us, then they will become for us a means of God's grace in our lives. Grace that the Spirit of God will use to make us more like Christ. Spiritually, we've been given certain practices through the scriptures and through our Christian tradition that are used by the Spirit to make us proficient in holiness. Remember a few weeks ago, I was talking about how Gloria is learning to throw a baseball, and how I taught her to turn sideways and then put her arm back and then to throw. And we did that over and over again. Sideways, arm back, throw. Sideways, arm back, step and throw. Over time, if Gloria continues to do that, she will become proficient at throwing a baseball. I can only hope. Over time, if Gloria continues to do it, throwing a ball will in some ways become routine. She won't have to kind of grit her teeth and really concentrate on those steps. She'll just be able to do it. This is the role that spiritual disciplines are to play in our spiritual life. They are actions that as we do them consistently over time, the Spirit uses those things to make us proficient in holiness. We see in the Gospels that these are disciplines that Jesus himself did. And as he did them, he grew up spiritually. 
Spiritual disciplines are actions that are used by the Spirit so that over time our nature, our character, will become more and more like Christ. Over time, holiness will not be something that we have to kind of grit our teeth and try to do, but over time, that holiness will become a part of our character, a part of our nature, will be a part of who we are. And as these are spiritual disciplines, we must remember that they are not done by ourselves, but they are done in the presence of the Holy Spirit and with his help. As we enter into practicing these things that we've been talking about, we ask the Holy Spirit to use them to change us, acknowledging his presence with us and trusting him to do his work as we commit to doing them. So for the last two weeks, we've spoken about these two basic practices of the Christian life. Uh, reading the word and prayer. These are practices that enable us to have communion with God, to speak to God and to hear from God. And it's in this relationship with God that we grow. We are reminded by Aslan last week that there is no other stream. There is no other stream. If you weren't here last week, you'll have to listen to my sermon to know what Aslan said. There is no other stream. Scripture reading and prayer are the two basic practices of the Christian life. If we're going to grow, these are the two things that we must commit to do. Not because there's some rule to follow, or if we do them, then somehow God's going to bless us magically, or we'll somehow find favor in his eyes if we do them. That's not our motivation. We seek to do these things because all relationships grow and develop out of communication with the one that we love. And it is in prayer and scripture that we communicate with the one that we love. And it is out of this relationship with God that we drink from the stream of living water. Out of this relationship with God that we grow in Christ. Out of this relationship with God that the Spirit shapes us into Christ's likeness. Prayer and Bible reading. These are the two basic practices that we must commit to if we are going to become more like Christ. But there are also other practices as well, other practices that the scriptures speak about, uh, other practices that we saw Jesus himself doing in his own life. And in the next couple weeks, I'm going to be introducing you to some of these other practices as well. Now, the danger in talking about spiritual disciplines, whether they're basic practices like Bible reading and, and, and prayer or other disciplines that I'm going to be talking about, is that Uh, that you and I would hear about them and that we would take them as a load upon our shoulders. That we would take them as if they were a burden that we are to carry and then we feel guilty if we do not do them. This is a very real issue. And so because of that, I want to talk more about uh, this issue of guilt. All of us fail to live as we should, right? Very few of us read the word and pray consistently as we know that we should. That's true of all of us. And many of us, maybe even most of us, often in our lives feel guilty because of our lack of devotion and commitment. I want to say to you that the last thing that I want to do, as as those of you who are under my own pastoral care and under my preaching, I would never want any of you to feel guilty because of your lack of devotion. We never want to put a burden on your shoulders that is too heavy for you to bear. 
At the same time, all of us need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and to his conviction in our life. And there is a difference between guilt and conviction. And the main difference between these two is what direction you're facing. Are you facing the cross or are you running away? When you hear words that challenge your uh, lack of devotion or uh, our discipline, do those feelings make you run away from God or do they make you run to him? Satan, the accuser, will seek to make your lack of devotion, devotion just one more reason why you aren't worthy to come to God, why you aren't worthy to pray. Satan, the accuser, will cause your lack of devotion and commitment to be just one more reason to not come to God. But the Holy Spirit desires to turn your attention to Christ. So do you lack devotion? Well, the Spirit seeks to turn that reality so that your attention will be turned to the cross, so that you will be reminded of your one more reason that you need Jesus. Not one more reason that you should flee from him, but one more reason that you would come to him. Remember Paul's words in this passage, I want to know Christ and his death and his resurrection, but Paul freely admits, not that I have already obtained all of this. Not that I have already obtained all this. It's important for us to admit this. Guilt doesn't allow us to admit it. Guilt leads us to hide, like Adam and Eve did in the garden when they sinned. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads us to consider and take an honest assessment of ourselves and to be able to say, it's true, I have not yet obtained all of this, but I continue to press on toward Christ and toward the goal that he calls me toward. My not already obtaining all this, my lack of devotion is an opportunity to come to the cross and experience God's grace and to encounter him there. But instead of coming to the cross, I think many of us are tempted to, to pretend or to not admit um, where we are, to pretend that we have obtained more than we already have. A few weeks ago, I, I had the privilege of attending uh, the Regent College Pastors Conference and the theme of that whole week was uh, the theme we've been talking about over the last few weeks, which was spiritual formation. And we talked about the practices of spiritual formation that pastors uh, need to be sure to enter into. And it was a great week for me. But throughout the week, uh, there were some times when uh, the speakers would, would ask us to turn to our neighbor and to have a discussion with them about our own spiritual life. Uh, would, talk, uh, would encourage us to talk about uh, how things are going in our, in our own scripture reading or our Bible reading or to share uh, what practices we do in our own lives in order to remain uh, spiritually fed. And this is a confession here. Because in those conversations with other pastors, I often tried to make myself sound more pious and committed than I really am. It wasn't necessarily that I was lying but I was trying to use my words in such a way that they would make them think that I did more than I really did. We want to give the impression that we're further along, that we have obtained more than we actually have. And I think that we need to take Paul's words seriously and allow them to lead us into freedom and not guilt. 
not that I have already obtained all this. These are words of freedom for us to walk in conviction rather than guilt. To allow the Spirit to convict us at each point that we are not walking as faithfully as we should. And to allow that conviction to lead us to the cross. To confess our need for Jesus rather than away from the cross, hiding from God because of guilt or shame, or hiding from others because uh, we're ashamed um, at our lack of devotion. We have not obtained all these things. We need to be able to freely say this to ourselves and to God and to others. And confessing it will be what um, frees us from our guilt. And so it's my prayer that the words of this sermon series of the last few weeks uh, from myself or from, from Isaac are not something that will heap a burden on you, but instead will lead you to freedom, knowing that these are practices that we are invited into uh, to make us more and more like Christ, uh, that they would not lead you to be guilty, uh, but would lead you into freedom. Bible reading and prayer are the two foundational practices for us, and these are the practices where we commune with God, where we speak with him and he speaks with us. In the next two weeks, I also want to speak about other practices in the Christian life that form us into Christ-likeness. In particular, practices that allow us to become more like Christ in his death and more like Christ in his resurrection. Our text from today, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. The scriptures and the Christian tradition have passed down to us practices where we can become more like Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In our baptism, we are given the gift of becoming like Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In baptism, we are invited into a life uh, that's to have a different kind of character to it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. We hear in another one of Paul's letters this this way of life, this character of life that we are to have that's reflected in our baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. In baptism, we are invited into a life that reflects the death and life of Christ. A life that is characterized by holiness rather than sin. A life and life rather than death. Our baptism is not a one-time act 
Uh, it is a reality of life that we are invited to live in each day. As we're placed under the water, we become like Christ in his death. In our baptism, we die to the world. We die to the desires of our flesh. We die to ourself. In our baptism, we become like Christ in his death by dying to these things. And as we are brought up out of the water, we become like Christ in his resurrection, brought up out of the water into a new life, a life that is characterized no longer by sin and death, but a life characterized by holiness and righteousness and eternal life. I want to suggest to you today that there are spiritual disciplines, practices that are related to both of these movements of our baptism. Both of these movements, the movement of death and movement of resurrection. Disciplines where we practice dying to ourself and to the world. And disciplines where we practice eternal life. The spiritual disciplines where we practice dying to ourself are disciplines like fasting and solitude, silence and simplicity, sacrificial giving. Disciplines like these are practices that the Spirit uses to crucify our flesh to help us overcome sin. There's also disciplines where we practice the resurrected life. Disciplines where we practice what we will one day do forever with God. Disciplines like worship and celebration and keeping the Sabbath and hospitality and fellowship. These are things we will experience in our eternal life, and we are invited to experience and practice them now as we participate in Christ's resurrection and become like Christ in his resurrection. So as the last part of this sermon, I want to speak about two spiritual disciplines where we seek to become like Christ in his death. And next week, I'll speak about two disciplines where we become like Christ in his resurrection. How do we become like Christ in his death? One of the ways that we become like Christ in his death is in our willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. A willingness to enter into a world that is opposed to Christ and to live boldly, even in the face of ridicule and suffering from others. In some places in the world, their faithfulness to Christ leads them even to martyrdom for the gospel. Death for the gospel. I hope that I would be willing to do that to die for Christ. I hope that I would be willing to physically suffer and die for the sake of the gospel. And I want to suggest to you that engaging in the practice of spiritual disciplines like fasting and silence, solitude, simplicity, all of those things are preparation for suffering for Christ in our day-to-day life, or perhaps even for ultimately suffering for Christ. These are practices where we deprive ourselves of material material and worldly things to remind us where true life comes from. In our very prosperous country, we are trained to live a life of plenty. We know what it is like to have plenty. We are very well trained to avoid pain and discomfort. But are we well trained to suffer? 
Are we well trained to abandon the flesh, to abandon our physical well-being for the sake of Christ? I'm not so sure we are well trained for that. It is through spiritual disciplines like fasting and solitude that the Holy Spirit uses to train us for suffering. Perhaps even train us so that in the moment of ultimate testing and trial, that we would be even ready to die for Christ, to set aside our physical life that we may gain Christ. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here. I think there's a real concern for us. A real concern of whether or not any of us, because we've been so well trained in the ways of comfort and safety and avoiding pain, a real concern of whether or not we would be ready to receive suffering and even death for the sake of Christ. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Isaac drew our attention to the scripture passage in the book of Hebrews. It's a scripture passage that I really didn't remember reading before that week when Pastor Isaac and I were studying it. It's not one that I remember being asked to memorize growing up, And I doubt it's in our Awana memorization curriculum, but I think perhaps it should be. It is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. The writer of Hebrews says this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus himself learned obedience and became perfect through suffering. Part of what enabled Jesus to go and to be ultimately obedient to his Father, to go all the way to the cross, was because even prior to that, he spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and in prayer. He was trained in obedience was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was willing to be silent when he was ridiculed and spit upon because prior to that, he spent time in silence and solitude where he came to know his Father's voice, where he came to know his Father's acceptance. I want to become like Christ in his death. In my walk with God, there must be seasons where I will be called to engage in practices that make me more like Christ in his death, that will cause me to be willing to crucify the desires of my own flesh so that I can submit to the will of God. I hope that if necessary, I would die for Christ. But what makes me think I would actually do that if I never practice Christ's death? if my life is characterized only by ensuring my own comfort and safety and seeking to avoid pain at all costs, then how would I ever, in the moment of trial, be prepared and ready to die for Christ? There are disciplines in the Christian life that train us to be ready to become like Christ in his death. 
And I want to share two of them with you today. I want to share two of them and share with you uh, the spiritual value of these spiritual disciplines and also to give you some suggestions for how you might go about practicing them. The two spiritual disciplines that I want to mention and to encourage you to practice are the disciplines of fasting and solitude. Disciplines of fasting and solitude. Fasting is the practice of abstaining from food for a specific period of time for the purpose of focused and intentional prayer. Now, there are other practices of abstinence that have a lot of value. Uh, abstaining from media, Facebook, email. Um, Paul speaks about married couples abstaining from sex for a certain period of time in order to devote themselves to prayer. All of these uh, disciplines of abstinence are important and they have great spiritual value. But I want to specifically talk about the practice of fasting from eating, abstaining from eating for a specific period of time. And I begin this morning with a confession. This has not been a regular part of my life in recent years. I have not yet obtained all of this in this area. There was a time in my life in college where I fasted regularly, and as I think about my own devotion in life at that time, I wonder how much of it could be attributed to the discipline of fasting at that time. We know in the gospel stories that Jesus himself fasted, and that he also expected that his disciples would one day fast. One time when he, was, uh, he was came and he was challenged by some, uh, some of the religious leaders asking why his disciples don't do any fasting. And Jesus responded to him saying that, that while he was with them, that they could not fast. The bridegroom was here. It was time to celebrate. But one day when he was away, my disciples will fast. Fasting is a discipline that Jesus practiced himself and that he assumed his own disciples would practice. The practice of fasting reminds us that we do not live by bread alone. Reminds us that our physical life, not to mention our spiritual life, are not sustained by physical things alone, but by God himself. We've trained our bodies over the years to think that if we don't have three full meals every day, then we're on the verge of starving. I know in my own life, at the very first feeling of a hunger pain, I go and I get a snack. Our bodies tell us that we're hungry and we feed it. Our bodies tell us that we need food and we quickly satisfy that desire. The discipline of fasting trains our bodies to know that survival, life, does not depend on satisfying every immediate need. The benefits of training our body in this way does go well beyond your stomach. Through fasting, the Spirit will train you to know that your sexual lust and desire does not need to be fulfilled every time. Through fasting, the Spirit will train you to know that your desire to acquire some new physical, tangible thing does not need to be satisfied every time. Through fasting, the Spirit will train you to know that your body was made for more than food. It was made for God, to honor God with it. In our very prosperous culture, I think that fasting is an important discipline for us. As I've said, we're very good at making sure that all of our bodily comforts are taken care of and that pain is avoided at all costs. 
Fasting is one of the ways that we, as Paul says, beat our body and make it our slave in order to train it to be slaves to righteousness. Let me give you a couple of suggestions for your own practice of fasting. Maybe this is something you've never done before. If you have never fasted before, I would encourage you simply by beginning with one meal during a week. Take one meal during a week and dedicate the time that you would take to prepare it and to eat it, to pray instead. Skip one lunch and take a walk and pray. Skip one lunch and close your office or bedroom door and pray. In that time, feed on the presence of God. Allow any discomfort in your stomach that you'll most certainly feel. Your stomach will not be happy with you for doing this. Any discomfort that you feel to turn your attention to God. And over time, your body will learn that it does not need food every four hours in order to survive. And over time, you will begin to expand to two meals and maybe even a day or two without food. As I mentioned before, in college, uh, this was an important practice for me and. It was important because our college campus minister practiced fasting regularly. And at one point, our college campus minister, Mark, engaged in a 40-day fast from food. Over time, Mark was able to train his body, make it his slave, and commit himself to prayer for a period of 40 days. Now, some of you may have some excuses for not being able to fast from food. Some of you may have medication that requires you to eat or some other health reason that makes you need uh, to have food um, at certain periods of time. And if that is the case, uh, during those times, I encourage you to eat the simplest food that you can. Perhaps a glass of water, a couple of pieces of bread, maybe a piece of fruit. Very simple food and take one time out of the week and simply eat that rather than a full meal. So I want to say again, I don't challenge you to this practice of fasting in order to heap some other burden on your shoulders, but I offer it to you as a means of God's grace. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit uses to help you know Christ and his sufferings so that you may become more like Christ in his death. The second practice that I would invite you into is the practice of solitude. Solitude is a set period of time where you abstain from human interaction for the purpose of focus and attention on God. One of the most valuable times in my spiritual life was a time when I was invited very simply into 24 hours of silence. 24 hours where I was to not speak to any other human person and to seek to avoid any other human interaction. It was a rich experience for me. I came out of that time with a real awareness of God's presence with me. And what I found also out of that time, that it had other benefits as well, I was able to listen and to hear from others better than I could before. I came out of that 24 hours of silence better able to hear what other people were saying to me. In so much of our conversations with people, we don't really listen. We're often thinking about the next thing that we're going to say to them after they finished with whatever they're saying to us. This discipline of solitude and silence caused me to slow down, enabled me to listen to others better than I could before. If Jesus himself required 40 days of silence and solitude, then I think that you and I could benefit from at least a day or two. 
Jesus was in more demand from people and circumstances than any of us. And he found the time and the space in his life to be in solitude. He knew that if he was going to engage people, to really listen to them, to meet their needs, then solitude with himself and God was required. Solitude, uh, I think, is also a practice that reminds us that the world does not depend on us. When we remove ourselves from a time, from our engagements with other people, from our work, we are reminded that the world does keep on spinning and it does not require our effort and work. Solitude is a practice that reminds us that in our daily life, we and our family and our friends and our work is ultimately dependent on God. So a couple of suggestions for how you could practice solitude. One would be to practice a little bit of it every day. To spend some time alone, quietly, before God. In my own personal practice, uh, before I begin reading scripture or prayer, I spend a set period of time in silence and simply sit quietly in the presence of God. This obviously has to happen before Gloria wakes up. That is key (laughs) for me. On the days when I sleep in, solitude does not happen. But when I do, I find this time set aside for quiet and silence in the moment. It's a rich time in the presence of God. A second suggestion that I would give to you is that at least one time every year, that you would spend 24 to 48 hours alone and in silence. A couple of years ago, uh, Katie and I attempted and did a really good job for about a year of, of each of us, uh, we would alternate months where each of us would have an opportunity to go away either for a day or maybe even a couple of days uh, to be quiet, to spend some time in solitude, a time for prayer and reflection and study. Sometimes uh, we'd find a retreat center to go to. Other times for me, it would simply be a day alone in a library or uh, a day alone walking through Pacific Spirit Park or uh, down along the beach. I think we should try to do that again. <laughs> be good. Solitude is this practice of removing ourselves from the world for a time in order to devote our attention to God, to be restored and renewed so that we can be of better service to our family and to our friends. So I would encourage you. We find time for vacations. We find time for uh, other things that we enjoy doing. I would encourage you once a year to find a day or two to spend time in silence and prayer. If you need a guide for that time, I would be glad to talk with you about it. Glad to share with you some of the things that I have done during those times for me. I would uh, be glad to share with you and to perhaps guide you uh, through a time of silence and prayer. Paul says, I want to become like Christ in his death. Just go ahead and say it. Spiritual disciplines like these are not fun. You probably don't need me to say that, but I'll say it anyway. They are not necessarily fun. But these disciplines have been given to us as gifts from God. Gifts to be means where we experience his grace and his transforming action in our lives by his spirit. We've been given these disciplines as a way to participate in the death of Christ in our lives. Disciplines that allow the Holy Spirit to train us to crucify our flesh. Disciplines that allow the Holy Spirit to train us in righteousness and not allow our bodies to be our masters. 
to not allow our immediate desires and concerns control us all the time, but instead to be a people who are controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit as he seeks daily to conform us more and more into the character of Christ.